Amen. We are in uh, the book of Hebrews this morning, Hebrews chapter 3, <clears throat> verses 1 through 6. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now, I've already heard somebody say, what in the world is going on with these notes? It's a blank page. And um, I, I did that uh, for a couple reasons. One, uh, some people are kind of like me. They're, they got issues if things aren't just so. And uh, so if they miss a word or whatever, then they go into panic mode. And so I figured if I give you a blank page and you can just write whatever you want, on that page. Number two, if I decide to change my sermon last minute, I can do so. And so there'll still be notes up here that you can write down if you choose to do so. But from now on, it's most likely going to be a blank page unless I get, you know, 60 complaints or something that I might change it back. But uh, uh, that's just the way it's, it's easier on me. And I believe it will be easier on you as well. So Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 this morning. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. It says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast, our confidence, and our boasting in our hope. The great passage of Scripture this morning, I've simply titled this message, Consider Jesus. Midway through the first verse, we see those words. The author of Hebrews is urging the audience to reflect on all that Christ has done for them. And these verses begin by encouraging us to fix our thoughts and our attention on Jesus Christ. And then they conclude by giving us an appeal to hold on to our confidence and our hope, which is also found in Jesus Christ. Now, why would the author put um, this in there? In fact, why would he start off and end these sets of verses with an encouragement really towards endurance? Well, because let's remember, the church was struggling. They were contemplating going back on their, on their uh, faith, going back on the path uh, that they were formerly on. And the author reasons that Jesus should be the conscious object of their faith. He should be, he should be the object of all of our faith should be Jesus Christ. Listen, it's easy to start things out in our life and then not finish them, then not endure to the end. We, we do this all the time. We, um, we start diets and we don't finish them. We start exercise routines. We don't 
finish them. We start uh, reading our Bible. We're like, we're going to read our Bible um, every day and then we don't finish it. We say that we're going to share the gospel maybe. Like today's going to be the day that I'm going to be bold for Christ. I'm going to share the gospel and then we don't finish it. It's so difficult to, to sustain the things that we start and it's definitely difficult. Uh, it's definitely true of, in our Christian life. It's so easy for people to supposedly trust in Christ in America today. And even follow up in baptism. There's no real threat for a confessing Christian in our culture today. Now, if we lived in a Muslim culture to confess Christ and be baptized would cost you your family and your friends and maybe even your life. But here in America, it's easy. It's easy to join a church in America. It's easy to be a Christian, or at least to call yourself a Christian. In other words, there's no real level of commitment necessary to be a Christian in American culture today. There's just not. However, there is a level of commitment to truly be a follower of Christ. There is endurance that is necessary. There are spiritual battles that take place. There's a war against sin in our lives. In fact, sin has brought down many mighty believers. Others slowly get dragged away by their sin. They, they neglect to spend time with God and soon they find themselves far from God. Some people just find themselves just kind of existing as a Christian. They fall into a rut of doing the same old thing over and over again as a Christian. Well, it's Sunday. Time to get up and go to church. Well, it's Monday. Time to live like everyone else and not let anyone know I'm a Christian. You are. You, you see, sometimes we just exist. We just kind of are here. And there are those that fall away because, as I found, we often like to wound one another as Christians. And you see people get bitter towards the church. Or they get bitter towards Christianity and they don't endure. Let's just be honest with you. Enduring as a true follower of Christ can be difficult. It can be hard. And this is exactly why the author is telling them that Jesus is superior to Moses. Moses was simply the greatest to the Jewish culture. And now the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, this one that you're following, this Jesus Christ, the one that you've placed your faith in, is so worth it. He's greater than even Moses. You see, they had begun well. They endured the sufferings and the persecutions, but they are in danger of drifting back into Judaism and neglecting their great salvation that's found only in Jesus Christ. And so the author says, no wait, Jesus is superior to Moses. You must endure because Jesus is worth it. What does he say? He says, consider Jesus. Now that may seem odd, but it's really not. What does it mean to consider something? Well, if, I, if I'm considering something, it means I'm giving careful thought and attention to something. You know, Jesus used the same word in Luke chapter 12 when he said to consider both the raven and the lilies. The ravens don't reap or sow. They don't have a barn or a storehouse, but God feeds them. The lilies do not toil or spin. They do nothing, but God made, makes them beautiful. The idea is to give careful thought to the ravens and the lilies. Things you usually don't even stop to think about. 
And consider how much more valuable you are than either one of them. Now when we consider something, it doesn't just happen. But it means that we have to put in some time and some effort. Have you ever been really busy and someone wants you to do something, but you have something else that you have to do? You just don't have the time. What do we, what do we call that sometimes if, if somebody wants you to do something and you just don't have the time or you just don't do it? A lot of times we call that inconsiderate. Why? Because we do not consider someone. We don't consider someone else. You see, we can, to, to consider means I have to stop and take time to do it. That's precisely the point. We have to stop and take time and give careful attention to. The problem is we live in such a fast-paced world that we don't want to. We don't want to consider our friends. We don't want to consider our church. We don't want to consider our surroundings. We don't want to consider Jesus. But we're really good at considering ourselves. How much time did you spend considering Jesus this week? How much time did you spend in your Word? How much time did you spend on the things that will really matter in this life? I mean, the Bible is filled with so much about who God is, and it's only, and, and it's the only sufficient and infallible rule that we are to use to govern our life by. It reveals to us who Jesus is. Some people make up their own Jesus, but the Bible shows us who Jesus is. And, and some people, they, they have a nice little Jesus that he never judges and he's always kind and he's always sweet. And, and, and when they sin, Jesus kind of gives them this great big hug and he assures them that everything is going to be okay. And he's a wimpy little Jesus, which is just how they like him. Because they can manipulate Jesus to whatever they want. The problem is that that Jesus doesn't exist. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. And so Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, consider Jesus. Well, why? First of all, consider Jesus because of who we are and who Christ is. Consider Jesus because of who we are and who Christ is. The first thing I want us to notice is found right here in that first verse, and that is who we are and who Christ is. The verse actually starts off with therefore, and this is a good transition because the theme is the superiority of Christ throughout the book of Hebrews and and has been throughout and will be throughout the whole book. The author is going to set out to prove the superiority of Jesus to Moses. Now, interestingly enough, verse 1 ends with two words, which which are these two words, our confession. The idea is not about an action of confessing, but to the content of what is being confessed. Namely, and most likely, that Jesus is the Son of God. And most likely, this was part of their confession, that Jesus is the Son of God. And so it says, consider Jesus... And the reason we do this is because who we are and who Christ is, and that's found kind of in the middle part of that verse. First of all, who we are. Who we are. The idea of considering Jesus is written to believers. Now, I love this because it starts off with, therefore, brothers. No, that's not what it says. That's not how it starts off. Right? It starts off, at least in my version, therefore, holy brothers. What does that mean? Well, the word holy, it means to be set apart 
as God's own people or consecrated to God for a particular purpose. Being holy means that we've been turned away from the things of the world and have been turned to Christ. We are set apart. We are, we are to be different. And it's for this reason that we should be considering Jesus, that we should be focusing in on Jesus. And so he says, holy brothers to those who are set apart as God's own people and are part of God's family. Listen, church, as being part of God's family, we are to understand that this is not our home. We have an earthly family, yes, but ultimately we are part of God's family and we will live with God in heaven where every tongue, tribe, and nation will be gathered and be part of our family. We live on this earth, but we're not to live for this earth. We are to live for the kingdom of heaven. Our attention is to be fixed on Him who sits on the throne in heaven. Not only are we those who are set apart as God's own people and part of God's family, but we share in a heavenly calling. Now that word share means to collaborate. It's the idea of being partners with someone. Partners in what? Partners in a heavenly calling. The condition one enters upon the acceptance of a summons, especially all that is expected of a person who accepts God's summons to the hope of salvation in Jesus. So let me break this down. We are partners in what it is expected of us as part of God's family. What is it that is expected of us? Well, holy living. And what is it that is commanded of us by Christ to preach the gospel to every creature? Listen, church, the, the easiest way for me to say this is we are partners with all other believers in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if someone is claiming to be a partner of the gospel and they are not proclaiming the gospel or they're preaching a different gospel, Paul makes it clear in Galatians, let that person be cursed by God or anathema. Furthermore, he seems to be associating the false gospel that those people are preaching with some sort of humanism or that they are man pleasers. Anyway, so who are we? We are those that are set apart as part of God's family, called to partner with one another in the proclamation of the gospel. We are those that are set apart as part of God's family, called to partner with one another in the proclamation of the gospel. Who Christ is. First, Jesus is called the apostle of our confession. Nowhere else in the New Testament is Jesus ever called apostle. Now the fact that, that here the author uses the name Jesus is a focus on his humanity. Remember, he's already spent a great deal of time developing the humanity of Jesus. So first, consider Jesus in his humanity. That he was tested. That he faced opposition and adversity. So consider Jesus in his humanity. He lived amongst the people, amongst us, and he suffered like we suffer. He died for us. He understands our struggles and our hurts and our needs. Consider Jesus. He constantly is considering you. So consider Jesus in his humanity and consider Jesus as an apostle, which literally means one who is sent. Jesus is sent by the Father. In fact, this is a common theme throughout the Gospel of John, that Jesus was sent by the Father. John 3.17, John 3.34, John 5.36-38. And He was sent by the Father to reveal 
the Father to us and accomplish the purpose of the Father to redeem us by the shedding of His blood. In fact, Jesus Himself said that He did nothing on His own, but only sought to do the will of the One who sent Him. John chapter 5, verse 30. Listen, Jesus didn't come to simply proclaim the truth. He was the truth. We have no hope of knowing God except through Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. We can't know about heaven, eternal life, or any of it, except from the one who left the glory of heaven and came to reveal to us these things. Without Christ, we have no hope. He himself said in John 17, 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Consider the humanity of Jesus who suffered and died. Consider Jesus as apostle, one who was sent by the Father to accomplish all the Father would have him accomplish and redeem his people. Consider Jesus as the high priest of our confession. Earlier, the author of Hebrews expounded on Jesus on the high priest, calling him merciful and faithful, like we just sang about. High priest here, the author is calling him the high priest of our confession. He is perfectly divine and he is perfectly human. He knows both God and man. And for this reason, he is able to intercede to God for men. He is our representative to God. It is through Jesus that we have access to God. And it is through Jesus that God comes to man. In other words, Jesus as high priest brings God down to man and man up to God. He gave his own blood as a propitiation for our sins, thereby satisfying the wrath of God that we could be welcomed into the presence of God. Though Moses was never technically called an apostle, that is the role he filled for Israel. Remember, it means sent one, and Moses was exactly that, sent by God to deliver his people. Moses was not a high priest. His brother Aaron was the high priest. Now what's unique about this is that the author of Hebrews is making it clear to anybody that reads it that Jesus fulfills both roles, apostle and high priest. Therefore, we understand that he was sent by God with the authority of God, and we understand that in order to come before God, we come through the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we need to consider Jesus because of who we are as followers of Christ and because who he is. Christ is apostle and high priest of our confession. Secondly, we consider Jesus because he is superior to Moses. We consider Jesus because he is superior to Moses. In verse 2, we find our first mention of Moses. And from verse 2 until verse 6, the author is developing this theme for us. And the theme is, Jesus is superior to Moses. Now, as I said in the introduction, the Jews thought Moses was the greatest. For them, there was no greater leader than Moses. If, if we think about Moses, we know that God 
saved him as a baby, that God revealed himself to him in a burning bush, and then sent him to deliver his people from bondage in Egypt. God used Moses to bring the plagues on Egypt. He used Moses to part the Red Sea. Moses struck a rock in the wilderness and water flowed out. He went up to Mount Sinai and received the Ten Commandments. He also received instruction on how to lay out the tabernacle. And he wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Moses was what we call in today's vernacular as the man. Okay, that's who Moses was. There was no one greater to the Jews than Moses. He was it. Man, Moses was the guy. However, there was something that Moses was not. And that is perfect. However, the author of Hebrews does not show how imperfect Moses is. It's not what he does. He doesn't say, oh, well, let me, let me reveal to you why Moses is imperfect. But instead, he does this kind of comparison. He starts it off by letting us know that both Jesus and Moses are faithful. Both Jesus and Moses are faithful. Look at verse 2 and verse 5. Both those verses say to us that Moses was faithful. In fact, that's a direct quote from Numbers chapter 12, verse 7, which says, Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. What does it mean to be faithful? We just sung about being faithful. What does that mean? The Greek word faithful is a word Pistos. Paul said that it is required of stewards that they be found faithful, which is responsible. It's an adjective worthy of or requiring responsibility or trust or held accountable. And so we are told that to be faithful is to be worthy of responsibility. It is this idea that our life is focused on God. Even Paul said that he spoke not to please man, but he spoke to please God because God examines the heart. You see, God knows whether we are truly faithful or not. And Paul knew that God knew our intentions. And so Paul was not out kind of playing the crowds. Instead, Paul had a singular concern, and that was that he lived his life, whether in private or in public, for the glory of and the pleasure of God. And the joy in doing so is to simply know that he was being faithful. And so the author of Hebrews says, both Jesus and Moses were faithful. He doesn't contrast the two. He simply says they both were faithful. And this is an interesting tactic. Notice he doesn't tear Moses down, but instead affirms what they already knew. Moses was faithful to God. So was Jesus. But then he goes on to show Jesus is superior to Moses. Notice how he does this. First in verses 3 and 4. Jesus' calling is superior. Jesus' calling is superior. Look at what the author says. The builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. Every house is built by someone, but God builds all things. Moses had an important role in God's plan. 
But Moses was only part of the house of God, whereas Jesus is the builder of the house because Jesus is God. And when the author has already established at the beginning of the book that Jesus is God, and he makes it clear it was through Jesus that God made the world. And so even though Moses was faithful, and even though Moses was counted worthy of the glory, Jesus more so. Because Moses is part of the house, and Jesus is the builder of the house. It was a commonly held belief that the architect was greater than what he built. And since Jesus is the builder and Moses is the only part, then Jesus is superior. And so the author does this without minimizing Moses. Moses was a great leader, but Jesus is greater. In fact, they are not even in the same class. Moses was faithful, a faithful leader in God's house, but Jesus is the builder of that house. If you look at Moses and you are in awe of what God accomplished through Moses, which every Jewish person was, then you should really be awe to know that Jesus Christ designed it all. That Jesus called Abraham. And then Jesus promised to bless all nations. That Jesus revealed Himself to Moses in the bush. That Jesus was with Israel in the wilderness. That Jesus gave them the manna and the water from the rock. That Jesus has led them to this point. And while Moses is worthy of great honor, Jesus is worthy of more glory. And so you can't just turn your back on Jesus. You can't return to Judaism and go following after Moses. Because if you return to Judaism and follow after Moses, you're turning away from God and you're turning to mere mortal men. And that's what—that's the argument he's making. If you return, you're turning away from God. And then he goes on. Not only is Jesus superior in His calling, but Jesus is superior in His personhood. Moses was a servant, but Jesus was a son. What is interesting is the Greek word for servant only appears right here, that Greek word, in the entire New Testament. The whole New Testament. Now the picture of someone who is willingly does the service of what is expected of him. It is someone that is far above a slave. They are They are an honored servant, but they are still a servant willingly serving, not by force. The idea is that Moses was great. Moses was a great willing servant, but he was still a servant. Jesus is the Son of God and heir of all things. Jesus is superior in his personhood. Moses testified of the things to come as a servant The law, the ceremonies, the priesthood, the tabernacle, it all pointed to something that was greater. Jesus. Jesus Himself told the Jews that if they believed Moses, they would believe Him. For Moses wrote about Him. You remember after the resurrection, Jesus on the road to Emmaus with with two men. What's it say? He began at Moses and revealed Himself to them. Moses showed faithfulness as a servant, yet he was not the son. He was appointing ahead to the son. And so the argument again is, why would you go back to Moses? Jesus is superior to Moses. Now, I doubt any of us got out of bed this morning 
and faced a temptation this morning to turn back to Moses. I doubt any of us face that temptation. But you know what we are tempted to do? We are tempted to turn away from Christ. We are tempted to look at things in our life that may indeed be good things and yet miss the best thing. For instance, sometimes we can become um, legalistic in our beliefs. Now, I know that's hard to believe that a Baptist could do such a thing. But it happens. And we start adding rules to faith that are not in the Bible. There's nothing wrong with, with being obedient to God's Word. But when obedience takes a turn into, into obeying things that are not in God's Word and requiring everybody else to obey those things that are not in God's Word and obeying man-made rules or man-made traditions, we have a problem. You see, sometimes as Christians... We hold the rules as the standard. We say, well, here's the rule. This rule is the standard. But the rule is never the standard. Christ is the standard. So we can't hold up a rule and say, well, you can't do this because this is a rule I have, or this is our tradition, or this is, this is what we, this is what I like. And, and you gotta follow this rule. That's not biblical. That's not found in the scripture. No. Christ is my standard. And so we can chase after something that could be good obedience and we elevate it to something that's not. We can do the same thing with theology. I love theology. But we can hold up theology which is good, but if our theology does not lead us into a deeper worship of Christ, then what's the point? We've taken something good and we've missed the best. Theology, if it doesn't lead uh, to humility, it's no good. If it leads you to pride, then what's the point? And so the thought is consider Jesus. Consider Jesus and, and be humbled about that. Consider Him because He is superior in this person who consider Jesus because of who we are. And who Christ is, consider Jesus because He is superior to Moses. Thirdly, consider Jesus because He is our focus. Consider Jesus because He is our focus. We as followers of Christ should always fix our thoughts on Christ. He is to be our focus and we must concentrate on who He is. We put time into it. We put effort. We put discipline. And we focus ourselves on Christ. Why focus on Christ? Well, because as we read at the beginning and talked about a little bit, because we are His holy brothers. We are to be in a close relationship with Him. Why? Because Jesus is the one who sanctifies us and we are the ones that are sanctified. We are not some special class of people, but instead everyone who knows Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord are a part of God's family. He is our focus because, again, we are partakers of the heavenly calling. We understand that, that this is not our home and that, that when, when earth is, is contrasted with heaven, earth becomes small and it comes up short every time because heaven is superior. That earth is our temporary dwelling place. Our heavenly calling is to be in heaven with the Lord forever. And it comes, our heavenly calling comes from heaven. 
and it will find its culmination in heaven with God because we are called out. Finally, we focus on Christ because we are His house. I want to park here for just a few minutes because I don't know if you notice or not, but but at least in my translation, the word home is used seven times in six verses. It is a metaphor for the people of God. As Christians, we are God's house. Now what I need you to understand and comprehend is that the Bible never, ever calls a church building God's house. Not one single time is a church building called God's house. But it does call repeatedly God's people His house. God's house is His people. And we would do well to understand that we can gather in a barn, we can gather in a field, we can gather in a junky building that's falling apart, or some place that is being specifically constructed to worship in. It does not matter. The building is not sacred. The people are sacred. Why do we build a house? If you've ever built a house, why would you build a house? Well, you're like, duh, what are you? A few fries short of a Happy Meal or something? You know, why do we build a house? Well, usually to live in it. Unless you're extremely, extremely wealthy, and then, then you might build a house somewhere that you rarely live in. You just kind of vacation there. But um, if you're that wealthy, let's talk. Uh, why, why do we build a house? Well, to live in. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21 and 22, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together, get this, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God indwells His people, not a building. Yes, He is here. But He's here because you're here. He indwells His people. This this is true of us as individuals, but it's true corporately as well. We are God's house. He dwells among us. We live in a day and age where church sometimes is not taken seriously. But listen, the body of believers that gathers together is the household of God. And that should transform our view of church. When we gather together as a body, we are the household of God. And so when we decide that everything else is more important, then we're forsaking the household of God. We need to understand that. You see, when we, when we comprehend that this is the household of God, it should transform our view. Then, then when we miss church or we say, well, you know what, I gotta, I gotta go do this. I can't be in church. You're forsaking the household of God. Last week, right after church service, we went over to the diner and, and we got a bite to eat and they had the TV on there and I, I saw the headline that, that the man went into the church in Texas and shot up all those people.
Some people may have been saying, well, I'm glad I didn't go to church that day. I just couldn't help think. <laughs> One, how sick that guy must have been as he goes in and shot babies, children. But I couldn't help but think, what a better place to meet my maker in the household of God, worshiping Him, and bam, I'm in His presence. I mean, unbelievable. And I know that doesn't give comfort to those who are hurting, but what a better place. You understand that when we don't come and we don't, we say, oh, I got other things I got to do. We're forsaking the household of God. The church is not a human institution. And that's our problem. We always cast it as a human institution. Oh, it's just something we go to. Oh, it's just something we do. It's not a human institution. It's a divine building. This is why Christians need to be members of a faithful church, grow as Christians, and discipleship takes place in the church in God's household. It's not a solo project, but listen, as part of our evangelistic efforts, we should also invite people to come to God. And so therefore, we should invite them to church. Now, I'm not saying an invitation to church is where we stop, but we should at least be inviting people to the household of God, folks. Come in and meet with God in the church. God speaks through the preaching of His Word. In the church, worship takes place. In the church, people gather together to praise Jesus Christ. In the church, the body of the believers of God indwells. Therefore, church membership should be looked at as a great privilege. It should be looked at as a covenant together. It should be seen as a place where we use our gifts and our talents and our time and our treasure when we, when we come together. When we use our time and talents and treasure on ourselves it's temporary but when we use it in the church it will last forever in the long run what Christ does in and through the church is what matters most therefore as Christians if we're not involved in the ministry of the church when we fail to pray for the work of the church when we fail to give to the work of the church, when we fail to be involved in the work of the church, and we said, well, you know what, I can't really do that, or I can't do this or that, and we come up with all kinds of excuses not to be part of the work of the church, we instead uh, should understand that we are causing or helping the church fail as believers. Listen. Christ was clear when He said, I will build My church. I will build My church and the gates of hell will not prevail against His Church. Let me ask you something. Are gates offensive or defensive? They're defensive, right? You put up a gate to keep things out. 
And Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Do you get it? Here's what's happened to the church. We gather together. We hunker down. Right? Oh, here's the church. We've got the church. We're together. We hunker down. And we hope that things will work out. We hope that things in the end are all going to work out. We're gathered together. we got our churches. You know, sometimes it's the us for no more policy or whatever. And we have our little church. And we hunker down. But the call of the church is to storm the gates of hell. That's the call. Because the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We have our marching orders. We take forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's awesome. Because it's it's awesome and it's comforting. Because the author of Hebrews has a way of, of showing us that, Hey, church, you're the body of Christ. Storm the gates of hell with the God. Listen, the gates of hell has no chance. Because Christ has declared that they will not prevail. Church, we have to stop sitting back and hoping things work out. We have to stop saying, oh boy, I sure hope stuff works out. No! We storm the gates of hell, church. And then, he always has a a way of throwing kind of a, a wrench into our comfort zone. You know, we, we read that, oh yeah, we're we're the church and and, and he, he puts that in there, but 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 Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. But he doesn't stop, right? He puts that little word if. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. If indeed we hold fast. I love what F.F. Bruce in his commentary of Hebrews says about this. He says, nowhere in the New Testament more than Hebrews do we find such repeated insistence on the fact that continuance in Christian life is the test of reality. The doctrine of the final perseverance of the saints has as its corollary salutary teaching that the saints are the people who persevere to the end. In the parable of the sower, the seed sown on the rocky ground made a fair showing at first, but could not withstand the heat of the sun because it had no root. And in the interpretation of the parable, it's said to refer to to people who, when they have heard the word, immediately received it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, immediately they fall away. This is precisely what the author of Hebrews is warning against. This is what he's telling his readers about. Therefore, we have a constant emphasis on the necessity of their maintaining a fearless confession and a joyful hope. You have to, you have to maintain this. So let me wrap this message up for us this morning. 
We started off by talking about fixing our thoughts on Jesus and what it means to consider Jesus. And you see, the Christian life, it's a marathon. It requires intense training. It's hard. And guess what? There are times when you're going to want to quit because it hurts and it's difficult and it's rough. It's not a sprint. You don't just quickly run it and all of a sudden you're done. I don't know if you know this, but the name Marathon comes from the decisive battle of Marathon where the Greeks fought the Persians. If the Persians had conquered the, the, the glory what Greece, uh, has, the glory that Greece has, uh, or the glory that Greece was would have never been known. Again, fearful, against fearful odds, the Greeks won the battle. A Greek soldier ran all the way day and night to Athens with the news. He ran straight to the magistrates and gasped, Rejoice! We have conquered! And then he dropped dead. He had completed his mission. He had done his work. That's where we get the name Marathon. When I ran my marathon, I kind of felt like I was going to drop dead at the end. But thankfully I didn't. You know, sometimes it's funny when pastors get together. They talk about their church size. You know, I was just at these, this pastor's conference and church, oh, you know, we're running, we're now running 150 or now we're now running 200 or we're running 500 or whatever it might be. And they talk about how big their church is growing and that sort of thing. And, or maybe they talk about how many baptisms they have. And you know, our, our, uh, the Illinois Baptist State Association, that's kind of their focus. How many baptisms? You know, I'm thinking, man, I could just go dunk some people in the water and call it a baptism, but you know, uh, that we, that we focus on all these different things or whatever it might be. Sometimes they'll get together and they'll complain about their church and, you know, I'm having a hard time at my church because they're this and, and, you know, whatever it might be. Yet when the Apostle Paul wrote his final letter to young Timothy, I find it interesting he said nothing about baptisms or all those he had shared the gospel with. He didn't talk about all the churches he had planted. He didn't talk about all the evangelistic campaign, campaigns that he had conducted. He said nothing of the sort. You know what he said to Timothy? Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul, possibly the greatest Christian ever to live, said, I fought the fight. I finished. I endured. Here we are as Christians, so often looking to other things. Yet when all we need to really do is to consider Jesus. Consider Jesus because of who He is and who we are. Consider Jesus because He's superior to Moses. Consider Jesus because He is our focus. You see, let's focus on Jesus. Let our lives be about Jesus. Let our confidence be 
in Jesus. Church, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Think about the sufficiency of the redemption that He has met for you. Dwell on the love that bore your sins. And when Satan comes calling, and when he points that finger at you, and he tells you how great of a sinner you are, church, take the fight to Satan. Storm the gates of hell because he will not prevail. Yes, Satan, I am a great sinner, but my Savior is greater. Everything in this passage is about Christ. He is the great apostle sent by God to bring us salvation. He will not fail. He is the great high priest who reconciles us to God. Nothing will separate us from God. He is the master architect and the builder constructing God's house for His own glory and dwelling. And we are that house. He will not be thwarted. He will not be overcome. His plans will not fail. The house that He builds on the rock of the gospel of Jesus Christ will not be dashed by any storm. Nothing will cause it to fade away. And so we draw courage and we draw hope and we draw confidence because we know Jesus Christ and we are saved to the praise of His name so that even if somebody were to walk into our building and shoot the place up, I know where I'm going because my hope is sure in Jesus Christ. So this morning, perhaps you need to pray. Maybe you need to spend some time at the altar this morning considering Jesus. Maybe you need to confess to Him that you have done things your own way. Maybe you would like some prayer and I'd be glad to, to do that with you. I could do it up here. We could talk later. Maybe you need to consider Him for the first time ever. and Come to Him as Savior and Lord of your life. However, the Lord spoken to you this morning. We want to give you the opportunity to respond. I'll be standing down front. If you'd like to come and pray or you want to pray by yourself, you can do that or... If you don't want to, you can do that in your pew. But we always want to give that opportunity. So we're going to sing a song. And we're going to give you the opportunity to respond. Let's close with a time of prayer.